welcome to the Outer Circle Inner Stillness. Reflections and conversations exploring recovery work in spiritual disciplines and where they come together. The Outer Circle comes from a recovery exercise called the Three Circles. The Middle Circle contains the bottom line behaviors, those destructive patterns you are working to avoid. The Second Circle contains those behaviors, patterns, places, and relationships that, while not inherently bad, for you are an integral part of the spiral towards the Middle Circle. The outer circle contains the vision of your best and fullest self that you are seeking to live. Turning towards this full self is turning away from your middle circle. The outer circle explores daily practices that promote sobriety, presence, balance, connection, thriving, purpose, healing, and resilience. Inner stillness is a concept from Orthodox Christian spiritual thought that refers to the deepest part of a person's soul, the place where God lives and speaks. In pursuing the outer circle and the inner stillness, I believe we can find all that we need. Welcome to the outer circle, inner stillness, reflections and conversations exploring recovery work and spiritual disciplines and where they come together. Yes, that's that's the show. That's the one that this is. <laughs> My name is Reese Pesimio, and I am here with Ian Nelson, good friend, good colleague, great guy. And we're excited to bring to you another topic, which we hope will be interesting, stimulating, hopefully not too offensive, although some of that could be good for cognitive dissonance. All that to say, thank you for joining us. We're here with questions to ponder. Meanwhile, hello, Ian. How are you? Welcome. Glad you're here. Good. I'm excited for this combo. It's, it's important to me. I'm in the midst of COVID, actually, recovering from that, but sitting here by a gorgeous outside view with snow-covered trees and time to talk with my friends. So lots of, lots of goodness going on too. There is some goodness there. And looking at a little bit of snow myself, I, I, I don't live in a very snowy region. I live in Portland, Oregon, where we see like flurries and start shutting the schools down. <laughs> <laughs> and all the people in Switzerland laugh at us. Yeah. I have some friends who they, they moved to Switzerland and partly so one of their kids could go to school there and they're talking about how like, oh yeah, they get like snow drifts and blizzards and feet and feet of snow and like like there's not even like delayed starts for school. They're just like, okay, everybody get out your skis or something. <laughs> yeah, that's how it was for me in Montana too. It's just like everyone was driving in the snow. You You shoveled it out so that you could get out of your door from your house and like there's there's times where there was nowhere to put the snow because it was so high. So you had to like throw it upwards and over the, the five foot snow banks that you're walking through. It's, it's crazy. And then here it's like, yeah, inches and everything's shut down, you know, which uh-huh. I love actually. It's like, I love the snow and if it's shut down, then I actually get to hang out in the snow. So it's cool. Yeah. I am coming to appreciate that aspect of it. I, I would still primarily identify as a desert boy. And so technically not a huge fan of snow, although it is growing on me a wee bit. But I, I am coming to appreciate the the slowdown that comes with it. Mm-hmm. People don't show up for stuff and people get places late. And we just, you know, we have to succumb to the influence of the weather and are reminded that we're not in control of everything. And that's frustrating in a little way, but I'm also, yeah, starting to kind of appreciate the reminder of like, you know, I can just let go of stuff sometimes mm. and believe it or not, I don't die. Yeah. Ugh. That's a, that's a beautiful practice. I think it's cool that I'm, it's cool to see that you're, you're looking for that kind of meaning in, in the snow. And I, I'll, and by the way, I can definitely see you as a desert boy, especially for some reason, like 
the the orthodoxy that you're in that seems to fit like i can imagine you as like and you're wearing a brown shirt right now which makes me imagine you as like a a monk even easier <laughs> desert desert dude out there like yeah working on spiritual disciplines amidst the tumbleweeds or whatever <laughs> right trying yeah that's really beautiful thank you i like it so let's let's see let's get to it so topic for today is this question of how do you measure progress in recovery or how do you measure progress in sobriety work uh you know how do you you specifically ian i'm asking you because i want your opinion uh but also you know the generic royal you yell out there how do you all do this uh let me uh set up the context for this one so I'm a, I'm a professional counselor, addictions counselor, as yeah, y'all know, and uh, work with with addictions in particular. And my primary focus is around like sexual addictions, so like you know, uh, problematic porn use, compulsive sexual behavior. Uh, I also work a lot with drinking cannabis and drinking alcohol, smoking cannabis. I realize I need some punctuation in there. <laughs> But, you know, the, the, the addiction interaction, the dual diagnosis, and, you know, part of what we look at, too, is that where there's one problem behavior, there's usually a cluster. And so, so we're working on all of it. And in my, since I work with men's groups, and um, most of the men that I work with uh, also come with partners, uh, because, you know, people, they, they, they do that thing. Uh, so... And where there is addiction, there tends to be hurt relationships uh, with like, you know, the sexual behaviors in particular, there tends to also be, you know, infidelity, betrayal, or, or at the very least, just a lot of lying. And so there's broken trust and uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of wounds to, to heal on both sides and especially the, the, the betrayed partner side. And so a question that comes up often from the betrayed partner is, okay, so my husband, my boyfriend, my fiance, they're, they're in your group. They're not telling me much, or I don't know if I can trust what they're telling me. And how do I know that they're engaged enough? And, you know, when will they be done? And, and then, so the guys, they, they bring this question to, to group. They're like, am I doing this right? How do I know that I'm doing this right? How do I know that I'm doing enough recovery work and everything? That, that's a particular context that the question is coming from for, for me, as well as, you know, it overlaps with, you know, me and my own life experiences where I'm like kind of, you know, working through my own sobriety process along with my own spiritual growth. And, and it kind of mirrors this question in spiritual growth too of like, like, how do I know that I'm Christian enough? Or how do I know that I'm, you know, spiritually healthy? Mm-hmm. Are there, are there markers or milestones or boxes to check and things like that? I would wonder for you, Ian, where does this question fit in your life or where does it come from? Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting in your, I mean, in your introducing yourself, you talked about, you said you worked with people with problematic porn use and cannabis and alcohol. And so I do all three of those things. (laughs) I've used (laughs) porn problematically. Um, and I've, and I've used uh, alcohol and cannabis, I think, not problematically. But those are all activities that I that I engage in. And, and of course, there's it's not been perfect with those two substances. There's been times where I've used them to escape a little bit. But generalizing, you know, yeah, it's interesting that for for two of those two of those activities, I I've not viewed using alcohol as problematic inherently or using cannabis as problematic inherently. Um, but for my whole life, porn has been, has been viewed 
as entirely problematic um, until until a little more recently, which it still it still is mostly problematic. Um, but that that has been the area which I have been struggling to to determine if I'm enough, if I'm doing enough, which I think that word, I think, hits on something for me when it comes to measuring sobriety, especially when you talked about the the partner wondering if they're doing enough because their partner is still is still hurting because it's so so for me that's i mean that's a behavior that is very it's very measurable for 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 porn um it's obvious when it's used it's takes place on the internet on porn sites usually which is they're all i mean i think there's probably good ones you know but like i don't know about good ones there's less harmful ones but it's just a gross it's a gross place you know there's a lot of i think there's a lot of harm in that area and it also takes place pretty much alone which is just really sad and and dangerous i think a lot of the time so it's it's kind of that that behavior has given me insight into the process of defining sobriety for myself and it's always been measured by me just by frequency of use basically um that's been kind of my one my one measurement, um, which is really binary and kind of depends on a lot of different factors. And it's important. It, it, I think it is a good way of measuring sobriety, but it's horrible if it's the only way. I think I think literally it's harmful if that's the only way you're measuring sobriety. So, yeah, what do you do? You, do you want to talk about frequency of use when it comes to um measuring Uh, sobriety yeah yeah you're you're touching on a question there and as i so as as we've been developing this discussion i I started with a question like how do you measure progress um but i realized there 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 kind of needs to be a conversation about like how do you define the problem also which Mm -hmm. let's save that one because that's that's a fun one but I, I like how you, you point out okay. kind of the, the different relationships you have with, with porn versus with alcohol versus cannabis. And I would, I would, I would kind of say a similar thing. Like I wouldn't, I, like I use alcohol also. Um, I wouldn't identify as like a, having a problem with drinking, although, you know, it's, it's something to, to definitely think about for me, like, you know, looking at sexual things, erotic things online is very problematic. You know, the same by the same token, I might also say like, you know, I have a very mixed relationship just with like, you know, media, social media in general, because I mean, I love a good movie and like, you know, nothing wrong with enjoying a good movie or a good show, but there's a particular relationship that I can have with, with media where I'm doing it compulsively. I'm doing it to disconnect. I'm doing it instead of other things that are more important to me. And uh, and in that way, it begins taking up much more space in my life, in my internal life, than it really has a, a right to. So, all that to say, how do you how do you define the problem? Is it is it the frequency by which you use? I would say that's certainly an element of it. Like, I mean, you use enough alcohol, and there's like just on a chemical level, it becomes it becomes damaging for your body uh, at one level, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Like depending on your standard, your your sexual ethic, your your marital agreements, like you engage in any sort of sexual or erotic experience other than with your with your partner, and and you've you've acted out depending on where you put your lines there. But 
But yeah, but I'd say more than frequency, though, it's it's the the way in which you approach it, the the reason the for which you use it. Yeah, the the desired effect of it. The desired effect. What do you mean by the desired effect? Like if I so you know take alcohol again. So when I uh, you know, Sunday I go to divine liturgy and then at the end of it, you know, receive like a little spoonful of like the bread and wine. That's, that's the Eucharist. You know, we believe it's, you know, the body and blood of Christ is this really sacred, beautiful thing. And it's the, the desired effect in that moment is union with Christ, mm-hmm. spiritual growth, spiritual healing, you know, different mm-hmm. scenario. I'm at a wedding. I'm having a glass of champagne with everybody else. We're toasting, are the couple that we love. And in that point, like the desired effect is like, Hey, I mean, I like this drink if I like champagne, but really I'm wanting to participate with these people in this, in this event, you know, different than, you know, I'm having a drink before I go on the dance floor because I want to be, be looser. Or I want to be having fun, you know, different than I'm chugging, you know, shots of whiskey all by myself at home in the dark because I hate life and I want oblivion. Yeah. There, you know, it's, the same substance, but used with a different desired result that affects how the relationship with it is. Yep. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's head on. And I, when it comes to something that we never want to do a desired or a behavior to, to avoid totally, I think it's easy to forget the reasons we're actually using and the ways that we're actually using, you know? So I, I think pornography is actually, is a great, one to use because, um, an example to use, because I think, I think for so many Christians, for most Christians, I think it's, it's a, it's a never. And then because it's a never, sometimes I think just frequency of use is the only, only measurement. And then for so long, for me personally, I was not conscious at all of, of why I was using. And so, and so I didn't think about, I didn't think about the different factors that were involved there, you know, and, and for, this is the, these, the time in my life that's coming up in my head is a time, this is getting, this is getting real personal. And can we, can I say the word masturbation? Is that okay? You well, you just so. did. So it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's out. I, there was a time in my life where I was able to masturbate without pornography pretty consistently. And that was one of the first times in my life that I felt that I can engage in sexual activity without, without shame. And that was before I was married, but I was like 20 or whatever, you know, I didn't get married till I was 28. I was a sexual being for 18 years of my life or whatever, maybe longer than that. I don't, I don't know how you define when you become a sexual being, but like that, that time in my life um, was one of the first times that I could honor that my, my body had these had these feelings and these chemicals that were going on and I could honor that piece of it through an activity that was similar to pornography without, without inherently engaging in the motivation of, I want to hurt myself. So those are both, for me, those are both involved in pornography use really frequently is, is both the, the sexual chemicals, whatever hormones come up, you get horny or whatever, like that's there, which is not bad. Sex is beautiful. It's great. It's God created. And that was always there. And unfortunately there is no way in my life at all to honor that thing that was there. 
because I hadn't really been given the tools to be like, hey, this is how you can have a healthy sex life as a single person. What does that look like as a Christian? You know, that was, there was no discussion around that. So instead I was engaging the desire to hurt myself because I felt I was not good enough every single time because I was doing something that I knew was bad for me. And that was, and that, and that made a huge difference, you know? So, so just that one time in my life where I could engage with one of those motivations that was in, in a healthy way, it made a huge, huge difference for me, you know? And I, I just, I think that's getting to the core of addiction when it comes to the reason we actually do these things, the the motivation behind it. Thank you for sharing very, uh, very personally there. I mean, when you talk about, I think a really big shift that that is really powerful. This is one, I guess, is specifically around sexuality. And I'm, I'm, I'll think about if this can apply to, to other things. It can maybe apply to how we interact with food, because food could also be a, an item of abuse also. Mm-hmm. But being able to recognize, hey, just in the nature of how our bodies are made, bodies, minds, and souls are made, uh, you know, we, we we need to eat, or we, we arguably need to, you know, have sex, reproduce. That one can be debated a little bit, but it, but it feels very much like a need. It's, it's very, but, and it's a very much like a biological drive. It's, mm-hmm. it's inherent to our being. And I hear you, you know, shifting from, from this place of, I need to punish myself because I think I'm failing or I think I'm unworthy. And so I do it through this particular act. Maybe I see this act as like removing myself from communion with, with God, with my wife, with, with my husband, it's mm-hmm. doing it out of punishment or out of just desire to harm oneself. Different than it sounds like where you've been able to get to sometimes is um, recognizing, hey, here's the beautiful person that I am. How do I how do I honor that? How do I care for this person? Care for this body? Care for the soul? Care for this mind uh, in a way that is good and sustainable and healthy and also like doesn't harm others? Yep. Yeah. I like that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna segue from there into starting to think through some different concepts of how how we measure like success and sobriety. Because so in most most recovery circles, kind of the 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 entry level idea is just abstinence. Stop doing it. You know, mm-hmm. Stop it. Just stop it. You know, <laughs> reference to there's a there, there there's a Bob Newhart uh, old Saturday Night Live skit that every counselor sees in their first class. I saw it too. Yes, very bad counseling, but it's really delightfully funny. <laughs> anyway, but there, yeah, so there's this idea that to say, well, if I just stop it, if I just stop drinking, if I just just stop masturbating, if I just stop shooting up, if I just stop binge eating, if I, you know, just stop feeling anxious or something, mm-hmm. uh, then then I'm good. And that's usually not a bad move to do. And a lot of times, just like our system needs a purge to, to, to cleanse oneself, to detox, like that's, that in itself is not a, not usually a bad thing to do. I mean, you have to do it carefully in some cases, but, Mm -hmm. but what seems challenging for me is that that's where a lot of people stop and they say, well, as long as I'm not doing the thing, then I'm good. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some challenges there. I kind of related to this and this is, again, this this is fairly specific to, you know, sexual behaviors, but there, there's this idea that, uh, oh, if I just get like the right accountability software, then I'm good. I don't know. I'm, 
I'm mounting a soapbox here, but I, I, I see like an unreasonable amount of attention and focus go into like, what software do you use? And where are the greatest yeah. softwares? And like, here's this list of like 12 different accountability softwares. And this one will take a screenshot and this one will send an email to so-and-so and yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. You know, this one has parental controls. <laughs> and uh, and my experience is, you know, watching all these guys do the software and all of them get around it at some point or they turn it off or it never works. It's a fun game. It's been a fun, it, that's, that, those are just games for me. Those are just like, especially, and I think probably in the upcoming generation too, it was like, here's a, here's a thing to hack, go. That was the, that was the, and it was fun. And it was like that, I I got literally, legitimately addicted to that feeling of like, I can outsmart <laughs> this thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 I feel like it's, it's it's a lazy approach to yeah. one's own soul. Uh, it's it's mm-hmm. this very external oriented, passive thing. Like 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 to so me, like I mean, not to say that I have everything down perfectly because I don't, or to say everybody follow and do what do Aris does. I know, and like I've never had accountability software. I mean, I'm not opposed to if somebody expects it of me, but like I. I don't find it useful for me. Uh, what I did find useful in the first couple of years of my celebrated process is we, hey, we did not have internet at our house. And so I, I kind of knew, and that was also before I had a smartphone too. So I just knew like, okay, when I go home, that's like kind of my, my safe zone where like, I know I don't need to struggle there. I mean, I have to be that's- careful at other places because I could get to the internet at work and the library and all that. But, mm-hmm. um, but I was like, well, if, if the idea is to limit access then limit access in like in a really in a really serious way, mm-hmm. which again is can can be a beneficial thing, uh, absolutely, especially early on. But what it, I've observed though is that's where a lot of people stop. Yep. And the challenge there is that just limiting access doesn't necessarily demand any change, any inner reflection, any character change. It yep. doesn't demand that you necessarily become a healthier person or repair any relationships. Mm-hmm. It can just be like, well, here's a box to check. I've got the software and so-and-so gets emails that they mm-hmm. probably don't actually read. <laughs> and, and, and I'm good. And I've, yeah. I've got the software, you know, you know, the software to watch over me. Yeah. I think, I think easy and like excuses, those are words that come up for me of like, I mean, I think you just said it's really easy. It's lazy. That's what you said. That those are, those are places that I, I think for, for me, it was really easy to stop there. And then, and then I always came back. So like the phrase white knuckling it, that's been something that I've heard in recovery circles often. And I think that's kind of a version of like, okay, I'm just going to not do it. I'm going to just going to do it less. I'm going to make this, use this thing to do it less. And then eventually it comes around and the behavior is just right back. It's, it's, those are all really thin protections against the really deeper weighty reasons for addiction. And, and I don't think, yeah, I don't think they work because they're, they're not at the core of the reasons, reasons why, you know? So I, it's interesting. I, I think I mean, I think I'm more addicted to shame than I'm than I am to pornography. You know, I mean, I think I'm not sure if that's what we're talking about. And you're redirecting it earlier, but like, I think I've I've been addicted to escaping what I'm feeling and hurting myself. I think those have been those have been the the more core reasons for me to 
to numb with, and, and, and pornography is not the only thing I numb with, you know, there's, um, Netflix and there's candy crush and magic, the gathering. I can put my mind in all these other places to escape and to numb and to, to hurt myself, you know, to, to avoid life. But I think all those, all those behaviors are all external to, I, something happened. I made a mistake. It, um, I'm not good enough. F me. I'm going to do something that hurts me. You know, I think that's, and then, and then also just like, as a, I think, especially as a male and with the dad that I had, who is not emotionally intelligent, typically so as a, as a, as a man, I didn't know what to do with things that I was feeling. And, and I was not given the message in my Christian circles that, Hey, if you're feeling angry, like, feel it and feel it well, you know? I mean, I was given the example of David in Psalms, but but never it was never talked about. And feeling sad was like, there was an inherent shame that came with whenever I was feeling a, a, a quote-unquote negative emotion that I didn't know how to deal with. And and of course, the words that I use right now are very, very revealing of the emotional intelligence that I still have. Happy, sad, mad. That's like, that's the extent of what a lot of people say when, when they, when they're asked about what emotions there are, you know, I have a ton to learn. I just, I just got the book Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. It's, it's diving deep into defining a ton of different emotions. And I, I know that I need that a ton because that's, that's where I've grown the most in the last couple of years is in emotional intelligence. And that's where I've seen a huge harm reduction when it comes to some of these external behaviors because I've I'm working on some of those core core issues like like shame and like emotional intelligence. So I think I think we could get into a little bit how we could measure sobriety when it com- when it comes to those more core places. You know, I think that's where the true measurement happens because sometimes you can't see because it's not just necessarily frequency or what type of use. Like I think you'll see it there, but I think that's a bad. I, I think that's a bad place to measure because you could, then you get caught on that and, and it distracts you from the core stuff. So I, do you think, is there a way that, that we can measure sobriety and it comes to shame and emotional intelligence, you know, what do you think? I think you're onto something really important there. And yeah, one of the, I, I made, I made a list of like, you know, in a rough grading of like, like less, less effective to more effective ways of measuring this and, you know, starting to get into like the, the much more effective measures has to do with emotions and emotional mm-hmm. intelligence and the degree, the complexity with which I'm able to reflect on, articulate and describe my own experience is really closely tied to my overall sobriety, you know, kind of a, kind of, kind of an alternate question, you know, how do you measure sobriety? Well, or the alternate question would be, well, what do sober people do? What are some of the things? Uh, and I think, uh, one of those things is being able to talk about the feelings, talk about the emotions. Mm-hmm. Because, because you're right, like a, a major function of acting out in general, however you do it, usually has something to do with feelings. Either there's a particular feeling I want to feel at cost of all the others, or I just don't want to feel feelings because like, I don't think I can handle them. Mm-hmm. The other yeah. thing I was thinking, like when you, when you were talking about feeling a stronger compulsion towards shame than even porn or anything... I really, uh, I mean, I appreciate when, when you talk about it that way, because I think that calls to mind the more systemic view of a person. I'm lately steeped in internal family systems, 
and getting trained in that particular model of therapy and really loving it, really finding it incredibly useful and helpful. But one of the things I love about that model, so so it is it is systems based, you know, kind of coming out of like family systems, which looks at the individual as affected by and also affecting the the family system. It'll look at the the human person as a system, you know, to say the person is naturally multiple and there's you know, there's this collection of components that they call parts. And then there is like the, the core essence of the person who is able to observe and interact with all of the parts. It's non-pathologizing, which means they say the person is good. All of the parts are good or there's no bad parts. There can be some parts definitely like that, that carry heavy burdens or mm-hmm. are imbalanced or yep. polarized with other parts or, you know, blended with the self and like kind of overpowering. But but we say that at their core, like all of the parts have some sort of like beneficial intent, mm-hmm. including something like the part that drinks too much or the part that masturbates and looks at porn mm-hmm. or the part that rages. Mm-hmm. Like, like you, you, so through that lens, I would interpret what you would say as saying like you have like a porn looking part and uh, a shaming part and like a self punishing part that all seem to do some, have some sort of interaction with each other. And so what you tend to experience for the, from like an IFS lens is, you know, those parts kind of exchange, um, take turns being, being the dominant one Mm. in some fashion for, for some reason, probably protecting some other part that's like really wounded or that those parts, cause we'd actually look at like both of those parts as like, uh, having a protective function, believing that. Like, well, if Ian felt like his lonely part or his rejected part or his unworthy feeling part, that would just like overwhelm the system. Yep. It wouldn't actually, but you know, the, 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 the protectors don't always know that. Yeah. I think it's so, it's, it's interesting for me to, and I'm, I'm new to systems theory or whatever, um, which I think is, it makes it easier to, to, to listen to what you're saying and, and imagine myself as a person who is a system who doesn't know that he's a system and, and being bounced around by all these different parts of myself that are, these things are coming up all the time, but because I'm not aware that they're there because I don't see that those parts are there. It's just confusion and chaos. You know, I think, I think that's been true of me for a lot of my life is that there's a lot of these parts of me that, that I'm not aware of. And because I'm not aware of, they're just these scary, blurry things that hit really hard and push me into shame cycles. And, and I think the more that I'm aware of those different parts of like the, the worthiness, the, the loneliness, the sexuality, the, like the hopes and expectations. And a lot of these things that are, that are very subtle, the more I can, I can see them, accept that there's goodness in them, accept that there's ways that those can, those things can push me towards harm that then I can actually, I can work with them, you know, but like, <clears throat> I think I've, I've viewed myself as like a, like this binary thing, like, well, there's times where I'm good enough and there's times where I'm not. And those are the two parts of me. And I mean, that's just a different plane. Like, I think there is parts of us that are helpful and parts of us that are hurtful. That's not invalid. It's just really simplistic. And, and, and when I end up viewing myself in that binary way and, and I'm not the other way where it's through multiple different planes of like parts of me, you know, I end up just seeing myself as hurtful 
all the time, you know, because, because I'm never perfect. <laughs> and it's much easier for me to just be like, well, because I'm not perfect, I guess I'm bad, you know? And then, and then that's the shame stuff where it's like, all this stuff is really confusing. I don't really know what to do with it because I don't know. And because I have to just react to it somehow, I must be bad basically, you know? And that's the, that pushes me right into that stuff. So I think so much of it when it comes to finding sobriety, and I think measuring sobriety has to do with the awareness that we have of ourselves, of seeing these different parts when they come up. And, and I think something that was in my mind earlier before you respond um, was just that I think a lot of that happens way before the behavior happens, you know, that there's, it's a, it's a slow build to the actual acting out. And a lot of that, a lot of that good stuff where you can measure the success happens before the actual behavior when it comes to um, self-talk and the noticing that happens when, when emotions come up, when uh, motivations come up. I think those are, yeah, those are all huge factors. Yeah. Yeah. The, the noticing of the cycle, uh, I think is a a really big thing. Um, there, there can be this sense when someone's early, early in the recovery process, of it just feeling really mysterious and dark and scary. And there can, there can be this sense of like, well, I was fine one minute. And then the next thing I knew I was doing the thing and I didn't want to, but I was, and I don't know what happened. And And I think we could say, yeah, thinking about how do you measure, recovery work? How do you measure growth and sobriety? You know, part of it, like you said, you know, learning about emotions, emotional emotional intelligence, being able to talk with more detail and clarity around your system, your cycle, what are the parts that are involved in this? But it, but it, and with there, with that comes a demystifying of your own acting out process. It, it ceases to become just this thing that sometimes happens and I can't control it. And you start to get a sense for like, Oh, well, before I acted out, I was feeling this and I was in this situation. And then but that was because the day before, you know, this person said this to me. And that was because, you know, for the week before that I was really stressed at work. And for the three months before that I was having existential angst because what am I doing with my life? <laughs> but, uh, and so in that sense, you could say, yeah, being able, uh, a really good measure of progress has to do with, progress in self-reflection and self-awareness, knowing your own self and being able to be present with yourself much more comfortably. Mm-hmm. The, the challenge with some, something like that, and in here I'm thinking about our, our betrayed partners again, and the challenge with something like that is that there's, there's no way to measure that because it's very much an internal thing. Well, kind, kind, kind of no way. Like, there's, there, it's, it's not a box checky sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. like you can say, Hey, I went through the whole facing the shadows book by Patrick Carnes and I did all of the exercises and I can check that box. Or, <laughs> you know, I did the 90 meetings in 90 days and I can check that box. Or mm-hmm. I have 182 days sober and I can check that box. Like mm-hmm. those things are nice box checky sort of things. And there can be comfort to that. But something like I've grown in self awareness, like you're not going to see that in like three months. That's more like, uh, oh, yeah, like you check in with the person like a year, two years, and you realize, oh, wow, something's different about you. And I didn't see when it happened, but I can see it now, mm-hmm. which is also really similar to how like spiritual growth goes anyway. Because, and I mean, you know, I mean, you might say, so there's a point at which I enter the church, a point at which I'm baptized. Uh, and then I kind of learn, okay, here's kind of like the spiritual disciplines that, that are good for me. And then it's this long process of like, well, doing the liturgy i'm doing the sacraments i'm going to confession i'm doing the fasts and am i growing i don't know i can't tell like i I don't have a a full view of myself but like 
over time, like other people kind of notice a change and it can be slow and it can be subtle. But, but I think there is a very essential paradigm shift from like an outcome-based approach to more process-based where you can say, like, I'm, I'm not measuring my spiritual progress or my sobriety progress in specific milestones or number of achievements as much as like how closely am I adhering to the practices I know that are good for me? Or, yeah. or if we think of it as like uh, this path that you travel, like it's, I mean, it's the path you travel to, till you, till you die. And then, and there's, there's not an end point of it, mm-hmm. but there can be a straying from it. And so it can, in some sense, measure sobriety by how close are you to the path? How, how fully are you engaged in what the path is? You know, what do you, what do you think there? Yeah, well, I think it's, so it's, first off, it's so hard for me to measure my own sobriety when it comes to measuring it in those more deeper core ways, you know, the, the more nuanced, like, how am I reacting to quote unquote negative emotions and how, how, what self-talk am I having in response to shame? You know, how, how often am I, am I? actually aware that I'm, that I'm hating on myself or getting stuck in, stuck in cycles and not able to, to complete emotions, you know, like those things are, those are the things that I'm beginning, I'm, I'm beginning more and more aware of. And so I'm, I'm getting to see my sobriety process more clearly. And those are, those have been crazy hard for me to see in myself and so I say it that way because you, you, you talked about how hard it is for a partner to see that. And, and I think that's, I think that's huge because I, if, if I can barely see it in myself, then I think it's really hard for a partner to see that. Um, and I, and I think it almost has to be an intimate partner, like in, not intimate sexually, but like consistent and, and really deep diving and just open and vulnerable for, for someone to really see any of that progress you know so i think mm-hmm. i think the deeper the relationship is the more the more easy it is to actually see those see those kinds of measurements because it, there's no way that unless you have a, a very open and vulnerable relationship that anyone's going to have any access to what your self-talk looks like you know like mm-hmm. i mean i think with my with my partner i'm privileged to be in a relationship where we talk about our self-talk with each other you know, we talk, we try to talk about what we're feeling openly and honestly, even about the negative stuff about them or the, you know, I mean, and that's, that's required because that's, I mean, that's required to see any of that, any of that growth, but it's even harder for a partner on the outside to see it, you know, yeah. um, <clears throat> before I went to bed last night, I, uh, we're, we're sleeping in different beds right now, which is because of COVID, which freaking sucks. But before I, before I came to my bed in the guest room, I asked, I asked my partner what she thinks about my sobriety. If I've, if I've been getting more sober and I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but anyway, she, she said that she has, she has seen me in, in shame less, you know, loving myself more, which I think the phrase loving yourself is kind of muddy and we can kind of take that a lot of different ways. But in our relationship, it's, it's meant, it's meant grace and like care, 
care for myself, you know, doing things that are, that are good for me, that are hard for me. You know, I, I've started a, uh, and I, okay, here's something I'm noticing right now in me. I have this need to defend myself, you know, like I have this need to prove on this podcast about sobriety, I'm getting more sober. And that's something that <laughs> noticing that in is, I think, <laughs> me noticing oh yeah that's really good i didn't used to do i didn't used to do that kind of thing where i didn't notice the motivations of myself and and then here it is again me trying to prove my sobriety but <laughs> like like being aware of those things i think i think is is where where i'm i'm starting to see like this is where i want to focus this is actually where i want to put my energy on 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 these on, on these areas so so my focus for the last couple of years has been on on shame on on some of that uh, and on emotional intelligence Um, and that's kind of that's that's becoming my focus more and more now that because i don't i hate myself so much less right now it's a it's freaking amazing and that's what my wife Ah, saw yeah heck yes i i i see the good parts of myself and i see the bad parts of myself and i'm like those are understandable. I, I see myself as someone who is trying their best in the circumstances. And I've started to link the unhealthy parts of myself to childhood, to my parents, um, to inner lies that I'm believing. And from there, I'm hoping to uh, grow in my emotional intelligence so that I can be more aware of all these different things in my system that are, that are coming, you know, but it's, mm. it, it just sucks. I, I just have, I have to like advocate for that against against that worldview that says you have to measure things with just the obvious the obvious ways you know because it because it hurt me for so long it legitimately did because i got it got stuck in it and then that was my only focus and i ignored all this other stuff you know it was actually bad for me yeah it's quite a paradigm shift to to let go of like the the more like consumerists, you know, maybe like capitalists, like very progress oriented ideas or are these very material, tangible, like evidence-based approaches that are very, you know, not bad, but they're, they're, they're limited. They're one way of seeing things. I mean, and yeah, I mean, you can look and say, okay, this person like hasn't done this or that behavior in this or that many days. And they haven't done a lot of things uh, that they used to do. And that's, that's really great. But but looking at, you know, are they becoming more kind? Are they becoming more present? Are they mm-hmm. taking more risks of vulnerability in relationships? Because I would say, like, mm-hmm. connectivity with other people is a huge marker of sobriety success. So I'm delighted that that's the thing happening for you as well. And uh, yeah, like taking ownership of oneself, taking responsibility for things. We haven't even gotten into legacy yet. It's this, uh, it's this huge shift of uh, seeing the world differently, seeing yourself differently, seeing yourself more caring for yourself more, which I'm going to come back to like the kind of the thing you'd said at the start, this idea of shifting from a stance of needing to alternately like defend yourself and punish yourself to a spot where you can just like honor yourself and care for yourself. And from that, like have what you need to care for others, um, mm-hmm. which again, it's a, uh, it's process and it's, it's easy to to say these big words now. And there's a lot of practice nuance that goes into it, which hopefully we'll get to talk to uh, mm-hmm. or talk about next time i am gonna have to uh call this one because uh time constraints my time keeping part shouting at me <laughs> saying be on time for your next thing however there is, we we dipped our toe in this one and i think we should come back to it 
we'll, uh, we'll talk more. There's some questions, like we said, talking more about how do we define like the problem? How do we define like what addiction is versus not kind of getting a sense more of like in that proactive sense, not what are you avoiding, but what are you doing as a sober person? What are you seeking after? Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love to talk more about like vision and legacy and the role of that as well too. So teasers, many teasers. <laughs> we should uh, we should come back to this. Yeah, it's a big discussion. I think we got into some of the the intro. I think I think it's good. I think it's a good place to start um, just breaking down the binary tendency that we have of defining sobriety, you know, and seeing that there is more nuance and that there's more factors than mm. we, than, than I assumed when, when first starting the recovery journey and that I think a lot, a lot assume, you know, so yes. I think that's a, a great place to start. And there's so yeah. much more to said, be said, Oh my goodness. I mean, Indeed like endless amounts and when it comes to the the places and ways that we can measure sobriety and the the reasons that we have sobriety and mm-hmm. the childhood childhood things that lead to addiction right. and there's, there's so much yeah and when you talk about not seeing it as a strict binary that becomes really useful because with this question of like how do you define relapse or not because if it's mm-hmm. a sense of like well I'm sober or I'm not uh that Yep. has some challenges uh, to it. Yes. So anyway, even more teasers. Dear listener, come back and hang out with us again. Uh, we will continue to ponder these things. I hope you'll ponder them with us. Thank you for being here today. Thank you much. Thank you for joining me in today's conversation. My name is Reese Basimio. I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian and a clinical counselor with specialties in substance use, compulsive behaviors, sexuality, and trauma. You can reach me through newpatterncounseling.com. This episode was mastered by Breakfast Puppies. Theme music is by Titus Lockard. Please like, rate, review, and share this podcast from all your favorite platforms. Please also consider showing your support of this work through contributing dollars through the podcast page at patreon.com slash outer circle. Thank you and see you next time. Thank you.